Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Will Harris is the owner of White Oak Pastures, a nearly 5,000-acre farm in southern Georgia that raises 10 species of livestock, produces organic vegetables, and honey. He is a fourth-generation cattleman who tends the same land that his great-grandfather settled in 1866. After graduating from the University of Georgia School of Agriculture in 1976, Will returned home where he and his father continued to raise cattle using pesticides, herbicides, hormones, antibiotics, and feeding the herd a high-carbohydrate diet of corn and soy. Over the years, Will grew disenchanted with industrial agriculture, for reasons you'll hear about in a moment. In 1995, he made the decision to return to the farming methods that his great-grandfather had used 130 years prior. Since Will has abandoned intensive agriculture in favor of a more holistic system, he's been recognized all over the world as a leader in humane animal husbandry and environmental sustainability. He served as president of the board of directors of Georgia Organics, is the beef director of the American Grass-Fed Association, and was selected 2011 Business Person of the Year for Georgia by the Small Business Administration. I do apologize for slightly lower than usual audio quality. It's just the nature of conducting uh, virtual interviews sometimes. But I was really thrilled to speak with Mr. Harris, and I hope you learned as much from him as I did. Now, on to our conversation. All right, I'm joined by Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. Will, how are you? I'm fine, Dylan. How you doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Happy to be speaking to you. Um, I've been kind of following along with y'all for a while on, on social media and been reading a little bit more about you. And um, so I'm really I'm really honored to speak to you today. Well, I'm I think, delighted to be with you too. Yeah, I think uh, what y'all are doing is wonderful. For, for people who aren't familiar with White Oak Pastures, can you kind of give me the high-level description of what y'all are and what you do? Now, Will, <clears throat> White Oak Pastures is our family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. Uh, I'm the, my great-granddaddy came in 1866. I'm the fourth generation. My two daughters and two in-laws are helping to run it today. And they've got three babies between them that are the sixth generation. We uh, pasture-raise cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits. And we're hand from here on the farm. In a USDA inspected slaughterhouse I built, red meat plant. Pasture raised chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks. And we hand butcher them in a, a poultry, USDA poultry plant I built. We raise organic vegetables, pastured eggs, honey, but there are a number of other products that uh, we got 180 employees. With the largest employer in the poorest county in the country. Wow, that's incredible! Uh, six generations, man, that's quite a family business. 
Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that history of the land and what you know about how the land was has been worked up until now? So, uh, my, I, you know, what, what I know about the way my great-granddad and granddad worked would, would just be family history and, and anecdotal. So we know how we know how people farm in the in the 1800s, early 1900s. They, they uh, I do know they were primarily livestock farmers, although they did raise sugarcane and vegetables and, and the grain that needed here on the farm. They uh, they they too hand butchered animals. Every Saturday morning they would butcher whatever was ready, whatever they had. Might have been a cow, might have been two three hogs, might have been a bunch of chickens, whatever they had. They would sell the, here in Bluffton. They, they loaded on a mule drawn wagon and while we bring it to Bluffton, pedal it. And, uh, <clears throat> they, and they were, I, I feel like they were moderately successful with that. <clears throat> My daddy took over the farm post World War II. He was born in 1920. And he really changed the farm. He turned it into a monocultural cattle farm. And he was he was he was successful and prosperous for all his time and place. I went to the University of Georgia, um, graduated in 1976. I majored in animal science in the College of Agriculture. And I came back and uh, further further what my father was doing. I ran as a monoculture only cattle. I had a feedlot, uh, very industrial operation, and I ran it like that for 20 years. In the mid nineties, I started moving away from that model to what we're doing today. We've been moving away from it for, for 25 years. So the industrial agriculture that you learned and practiced with your father, um, you know, let's talk about some of the things that you saw that encouraged you to switch up that, that method. Cause sounds like reading a little bit about y'all that it was extremely financially successful in those days. Um, what was it that gave you that, that push to switch to a more regenerative methodology of ranching? Well, it was not financial, as you pointed out, we were reasonably comfortable, uh, uh financially. <clears throat> we made money every year. We, I, there was no year I didn't pay taxes. We, we, we weren't rich people, but it was a, a comfortable living. I, uh, I, it started out with animal welfare. I started uh, some of the things that I felt had previously felt was good animal welfare. I didn't feel like it was good animal welfare anymore. Uh, quickly turned into uh, dissatisfaction with the land management side of it. I liked the way the dirt, the soil looked in the edge of the woods. I didn't like the way it looked in the middle of the field. And so I, we made, I made some very intentional decisions about shape, making changes in that animal management and land management, and I implemented them. And some worked, some didn't. And once it didn't work, I rethought it and tried again. 25 years later, we're still, still trying things, uh, implementing things. Some work, some don't. The, uh, <clears throat> the third thing that became important to me is this little rural community. Uh, I, I'm very pleased that the impact, uh, the changes we implemented on the farm have had on the little community, but that was not intentional. The, the land and animal changes were intentional. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, 
this little town has been drying up since World War II, but in, when I was growing up in the 60s, I don't think we knew it. I mean, in retrospect, it was drying up. By the time I started making changes in the mid-90s, it had dried up. It was in the, it was in the past tense. It was a pretty much okay. ghost town. And today, it's a it's very small, you know, having a hundred and something people, but it's a, a very pleasant, thriving place. And we knew this point, we didn't have anything. The only thing you could buy in Bluffton was a postage stamp. The post office, <laughs> literally. And today we've got uh, a lot of things going on here, and it's, it's, it's turning into a little destination. I mean, That's Disney great. World, Disney World, Walt Disney does not have to be afraid, but it, uh, <laughs> it is a little bit of a destination. And you're just so people know you're in the Gulf Plain there near the near the border of Alabama, right? Not too far from from Alabama. Yep, um, in the uh, bottom left corner of Georgia, near, near where uh, Alabama and Florida come together. Yeah, Georgia. beautiful area. Uh, yeah, a couple things you mentioned there in terms of the the animal animal welfare side of things. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that because a lot of and, and this will tie into more of the questions I want to ask you, but these labels like cruelty-free and, um, and the, the regulations that people have to follow for large-scale industrial production um, aren't exactly in line with, it seems, your ideas and my ideas of what cruelty-free really means. Can, can you expand upon um, the animal welfare side of things and, and what you have changed in how you treat the animals prior to the mid 90s my idea on good animal welfare would have been you keep the animals well fed well watered in a comfortable temperature range you don't inflict pain and suffering on them and that was good animal welfare that was that was fine you had checked all the boxes and done all you were obligated to do and I raised, I raised with cows like that for decades and was very comfortable with it. I, I felt very good about my animal welfare. You know, I didn't yeah. question you know, what my daddy did, what we learned to do at the University of Georgia. It was, it was fine. But then I came to realize that that's not good animal welfare. That's, that's a basic baseline you got to do. But beyond that, you need, it is incumbent on the stockman to provide the animal with uh, the ability to express instinctive behavior. Mm. The cows meant to roam and graze, hogs meant to root and wallow, chickens are meant to scratch and peck. And in today's industrial confinement environment, they, they can't do that. And when they can't, they're in the 24 seven stress. And that's not good animal welfare. That's a great way to put it. Allow them to express instinctive behavior. I don't think I've uh, really heard it said that way, but that's that's exactly how I kind of feel about it when I when I think about either pursuing wild game or trying to purchase more ethically, humanely treated animals. Is are they allowed to express instinctive behavior? I'm going to start using that. I like that. Sure. Um, when it comes to the other methods that you that you switched aside from well let's stick on animal welfare for a little bit so what are some of the things that you um, switched in terms of your either 
while they're alive or, or your butchering process to make this whole thing more uh, humane for the animals? Well, we, we, uh, we call what we do biomimicry. We emulate nature. Now it's, uh, I'll be the first to admit, it's an imperfect emulation. We, 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 can't, we can't do good as mother nature, but yeah. we do try to emulate it. And key to that would be frequent moves. You know, it's the opposite of confinement. And certainly we've got to confine our animals, keep them out of the road and off our neighbor's property and that sort of thing. But in the case of our cattle, uh, we move them every single day during the grazing season. And the grazing season here is 10 months long. Wow. <clears throat> the uh, uh, poultry is moved once a week. They're out in the pasture uh, with the feet on the ground. They move once a week. And hogs are moved about once a month. That's more that's more situational. We give them a lot more territory and give them longer out there. But uh, movement is key. In terms of um, biomimicry, do you feel that because y'all have what five thousand acres, give or take? The the home place here is thirty two hundred acres. Wow. And we manage a. Uh, uh, a solar voltaic array that's 1,425 acres. So, yeah. And when we're probably going to be grazing some more for those solar voltaic arrays. Okay. Uh, I read somewhere on a study that w- was involving white oak pastures that they think it takes two to two and a half times the amount of area to use these practices versus intensive uh, industrial agriculture. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's imperative to have a large piece of land to do this, or can people implement this stuff on a smaller scale? Uh, first of all, let me say that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm biblical about scale. Any scale can work. We get that question a lot. What scale should I operate at? And if you're in the right place, a very, very, very small piece of property can, can work financially. And, and be fine, be great. I mean, you can urban gardens, or you no know, more than people's yard. You can produce a tremendous amount of food, and it works fine. Yeah. When you start throwing uh, uh, cattle into the equation, it becomes much more land intensive. So it, it takes a lot more. But on a tiny piece of property, you can raise poultry and vegetables, you know, eggs. You know, a little bit bigger property, you may add small ruminants like sheep and goats. It's got to get a little bit bigger to put cattle. It's just, just the nature of the, uh, again, that instinctive behavior, which you got to have for them to, you know, a, a cow will eat 2% of their body weight a day. So that's a lot of grass. I mean, probably, probably contaminate another percent of it. So 3% a day. Uh, with our, our ruminants, uh, the, the goal is to give the land a really hard animal impact, but then a really long recovery time. Mm. I, I hear people say you want to graze a third, leave a third, and trample a third. <clears throat> well, there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't always work that way. <clears throat> but what is important is <clears throat> you want to have a good hard animal impact eat the grass, weed, weed, forbs, a lot, of your, a lot of trampling, that cloven hoof pressing into the soil, a lot of urination, a lot of defecation. 
<clears throat> and then a long recovery period. I don't want them to bite that blade of grass, but one time. Okay. Today. I don't want them to come back and bite that same blade of grass tomorrow. I want to be a new blade of grass because I believe that blade of grass is better off if it's grazed off. But if it's if it grazed and then not, not allowed to recover and grazed again, it's overgrazed. Overgrazed is not a, a condition of how much of the plant is eaten, it's how frequently it's eaten. The plant has got to be given time to recover. Yeah, I I hear a lot of the same ideas uh, or similar kind of way of thinking that I've heard from uh, not only the people at Rome Ranch, who I know you've I know you've uh, spoken to them before, but um, reading Gabe Brown uh, put out a book called Dirt to Soil and, and some of the stuff that Joel Salatin talks about. Are, are those people that you pay attention to and um, share ideas with? Gabe Brown is as good as it gets. Yeah. He's simply as good as, as good as they come. <clears throat> there are a lot of people, or there are some people in this movement that are teaching and instructing and writing that I I don't agree with fully on everything. But the Gabe Brown, is, is, uh, I buy into everything he said. Yeah, I'm really enjoying his book. He's a very super pragmatic thinker and just kind of a to B, he's just like this. This is why it works. This is why it's better. Yeah. Um, yeah so one of the other things I, I was interested in and in looking at y'all's uh, the stuff that y'all have put out, um, it seems like some people are calling for a certification, saying you know having a regenerative certified or savory institute managed, you know these these kind of definitions and certifications that you can put on food packaging might help. Um, help this entire system and help consumers. But when it comes to the previous terms, when it comes to organic, to free range, cruelty free, these other terms, um, we can kind of see how they have fallen short or caused issues where cage free might mean, you know, they're still confined. Um, so what are, what are your feelings on the regenerative movement, do you think that it needs a, a classification, a certification, or do you think that we should avoid um, continuing to try to label these things? How do we, you know, how do we approach that? Well, I do have a very strong opinion on that. And a disclaimer is I was on the founding board of the ROC, Regenerative or Organic Certification. I was on that board as a favor to a guy named David Bronner, who's also on the board, one of the founders. And he needed a livestock, he's a friend of mine, he needed a livestock guy to help write the standards. He asked me to be on it, and I did, and they wrote the standards, and I think they're good. And I have come full circle on certifications. Uh, there was, when, when certifications first started becoming kind of vogue, I was really excited about that as being a way of conveying what we were doing to consumers without having to spend all your time talking and teaching. Mm. And uh, there aren't many certifications that I don't either have or have had here on this farm. We still got a bunch of them. But that said, certifications has been a disappointment for me. And the reason is I did not anticipate that there would be a whole certification industry that developed when certifications got started. 
and today there are certifications for any level of land and animal management from snow white to smut black. And you can venue a farmer, a rancher, and venue shop and get a standard that fits what he's doing and not have to change anything. And the consumer is hopelessly confused because there's so many out there. And I think I think certifications do more harm than good because uh, the consumer goes in, sees all those certifications, and says, "Oh hell, I'll take this one. It's certified." Yeah. And it is likely not one of the better certifications. So I, I'm not, I'm not on a warpath against certifications. I still got a bunch of them, but I'm really disappointed at the uh, long-term effect it's had. Yeah, it's kind of a catch-22. It seems like whatever, you know, when organic agriculture started coming around, it's consumers, I think, had hope, and then everyone kind of gets disenchanted with it eventually, and then you go, oh, we need a new term because that one's not working properly. And I'm sure the same thing will happen with regenerative throughout our lifetimes. Yeah, uh, well, we, call it, we call it greenwashing. And the yeah. fact is big multinational food companies can co-opt these terms faster than we can come up with them. So sadly, the answer is the consumer's got to go to the trouble of knowing something about their farmer and the program he's on. And that's, that's not convenient, but sadly, that's kind of where it is. Do you feel like y'all spend a lot of uh, resources trying to educate consumers now or, or not really? Well, I think we do. Uh, you know, we, you know, we talk about where my farm's located. I'm in a very, very remote place. I am, I am, uh, in one of the few places east of the Mississippi that I'm 50 miles from a Walmart. It's hard. Right. To, it's hard to do that. East of Mississippi really. Yeah. <clears throat> We're very remote, very poor. And, uh, my, my customer base is not my local friends and relatives and neighbors. Uh, but, but we have, there's a demand for people to come here and some come here to learn and some come here to see, and you know, we, we do what we say, we say we're going to do some learn to, to learn how to produce it. So we welcome all of them. We literally have built cabins. We're also 50 miles from Holiday Inn or Hampton Inn. So we built cabins for people to stay in. We built a store. We built a restaurant. We built an RV park. We built a lot of stuff to uh, accommodate people when they do come here. And all that is part of all, all of our marketing is education. I guess that's the best way to say it. We don't, we don't spend money advertising anywhere we, we uh, put it all towards education we just formed a uh, a nonprofit, a 501c3 called center for uh, agricultural resilience mm. and uh, i feel real good about that uh, uh, as uh, regenerative ag land management is called traction uh, there's a, a appetite among farmers and, and landowners to learn how to manage land regeneratively. And a lot of people have stepped up to do it. My friend, my friend Gabe Brown being one of the best and others. And I know there's, there's some other good ones. 
Spencer Smith is really good. And some others are good. But I, I didn't feel compelled to get in the education business for regenerative land management because there were so many other people doing it. And, and I thought most of them were doing it well. Not all of them, but most of them. But uh, as it developed, I did feel compelled to get in it on the resilience side. And let me explain that to you. So regenerative land management is, is what has resonated and got traction and what so many people want to do. It's what so many people are out teaching that, that management. And that's essential. That's got to be done. I'm so glad that's happening. But the fact is, I have realized that a farmer, landowner, rancher can become a really good regenerative land manager and go broke. And the reason is when a farmer moves to regenerative land management and that system, they internalize a lot of the cost that big ag handles for us in the industrial market. <clears throat> you know, you can, as a, a commodity farmer, you can do your production and pick up the phone and call some big ag company and say, I have a load of blank, come get it. And that blank could be cabbages or tomatoes or corn or soybeans or hogs or cattle. And the big ag corporation will send and get it and they'll mail you a check or EFT the account. And then they don't, they, don't, they don't pay you much, but they do. It's easy. <clears throat> when you move to this kind of farming, you internalize the cost that big ag handles for us. So as you farmers, consumers don't buy hogs and cows and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. And you got to make that conversion, that process. And you got to get it monetized. You know, farmers don't, consumers don't consume where farmers farm. We farm in Georgia and Missouri and Arkansas, and they consume in those zip codes with the high net worth, high disposable income. So <clears throat> when, you, we, when we take on all that, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot. You got you got to rethink the whole program, other than uh, not over and above just the land management. So we we're teaching that with our Center for Agricultural Resilience. Yeah, that's a, another term that I've uh, speaking with the folks at at Rome Ranch and um, the uh, the people at Ranch Lands and a lot of the folks that are interested in some of these same ideas, resilience keeps coming up as, you know, we're, yes, we're, we're taking an initial financial risk to swap from industrial to regenerative, but the payoff is uh, we can now manage this land the way that we see best, and we are not at the whim of the market as much as, you know, um, as, as previously. But I guess, like you're saying, it kind of depends on um, the consumer side of things as well, which... Um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about... Uh, USDA says that uh, the farmer gets 14.7 cents, I think it is, of the consumer dollar. That's what finances away with the farmer. 
Okay. And that sounds horrible, and it is horrible. But we have to remember that big ag, which I, I'm not a fan of big ag. I rail against big ag, but big ag does provide some services for that 85 cents they take. And, when, and that's the re-internalization of those costs when you move to this kind of agriculture. You know, I, I get 100 cents of every dollar, not 14.3, but then I write checks for $100,000 for payroll every Friday. Yeah. Now, I would rather have it that way. But uh, there is a very steep learning curve when you move from that industrial commodity model to truly resilient uh, food production. What are some of the, the tough lessons you had to learn along the way on that learning curve? So uh, when I was an industrial cattle farmer, I had three or four employees. Wow. I was the only decision maker here. And uh, today with 180 employees, there's a lot of decision making. We had to, we had to build a company. We had to develop a structure with directors, I'm the owner and I got some directors and then managers report to them and employees report to them. And we had to build a company. We had to have an HR person. We had to have a, a controller. We had to, you know, just a lot of things that had to be done. And I'd rather, I'd rather have it this way. I'd rather get 100 cents and build my own ship than get 14.3 cents and let somebody do all this stuff for me. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, what, what happened to rural America was moving to that model. The 14.3 cents impoverished rural America. It, it made little towns like this one financially irrelevant. Mm. Yeah, a couple of things there. Uh, on the, the internalized costs side of things, one of the big ones, it seems like, was switching to your own... Um, abattoir your own slaughterhouse facility can you talk about that and and how y'all slaughter animals versus how it might be done uh industrially so uh, I, I i never wanted to own a slaughterhouse ever i didn't want to do that that was not that was not in my plan i plan to use uh, little out little independent slaughterhouses to do that that function for me that's what i did when i started but uh uh, they ran, I was, I was basically renting their excess capacity. And they ran out of excess capacity before I got profitable. I still hadn't grown the business enough to make money with it. <clears throat> so when they ceased to be able to slaughter what I needed, I had to either build one of my own or uh, go back to the industrial model. I didn't want to do that. So I did, I did build one. We borrowed uh, $2.2 million, built a red meat plant. It wasn't big enough, but we borrowed uh, another $800,000. It, it, it worked. And then later, the poultry plant. And today, we spent over $7 million in processing infrastructure wow. to, to handle our uh, needs. And it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I think it's highly situational. I think that. Uh, you know, there are a lot of ways it can be done. Entrepreneurs can just process, invest in, and run processing or co-ops. 
uh, you know, I, I did what I did. I'm a C student with bank loans. So, I mean, it can be done without, it's, it's a highly replicatable model. Uh, you may not want to do it, but you can do it. And there are other options to do, but it, it, it somebody's got to handle the process. I mean, that, that yeah. just, it's just got to be done. It's an essential functionality and somebody's got to step up and do it. In terms of the actual, um, the actual slaughter process, it's, is it fairly similar to what would be happening if you externalized that, if you uh, used a, an industrial slaughterhouse, or do you all use different practices? That's a pretty good question. Of course, we all have to adhere to USDA regulations. Your USDA has got, understandably, very stringent uh, needs about what's got to be, requirements got to be followed. And we all have to do that. We have to do that at this level the same way they do on a, on a, on a big slaughter plant. And the main difference is scale. Uh, we slaughter about 100 cows a week. Big industrial plants can slaughter up to 6,000 cows a day. Oh, my so gosh. I'm going to say that again for you. 100 per week or 6,000 per day. <clears throat> so the scale is not comparable. Not, not even close. And that and that changes a lot of other things. You know? The main thing for me is the economies of scale they get are incredible. It probably costs us over $500 to slaughter a cow. I mean, I, I could argue with myself on that number because it's, you know, there's a way we want to put the cost, but probably $500-something. And an is industrial... That, is that partly because you're using more human labor and it's less mechanized Correct. that and uh and you know they can uh <clears throat> do such a good job monetizing tiny 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 little bits and pieces and organs because they've got such a huge volume to, to separate out of to select out of okay but yes this was primarily because it's you know there in my in my slaughterhouse there is no, no there's, there's two saws, two saw electric saws in the plant. One, one's a carcass saw to split it in half, and the other one's a band saw to cut stakes. Yeah. Everything else is done by a man with a knife, just like you would a deer in the woods, except it's cleaner. So yeah, a lot of a lot of hand labor. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, I think um, you know that's one thing that people talk about cruelty free and a lot of time they they cite the the harvesting process but to me that's you know from what i've seen that's a relatively quick process and even in industrial plants um the animals dispatched with a pneumatic bolt to the head and then bled out which is probably similar to how y'all do it yeah and you know that that's a small part of the the cruelty argument but really to me the um the argument should be centered around more like what we talked about earlier, not allowing the animals to express instinctive behavior throughout the majority of their life. As long as they're humanely treated up until that point of slaughter, um, that's more what I'm concerned about and what it seems like y'all are, are really focusing on as well. Yeah. You know, I don't like this. Uh, so it's one thing that people say that, that are in, in business I'm in is, we give our cows, our animals a great life with one bad day. And I, I really don't like that. Uh, I, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to have a bad day. 
executed. The fact is, unapologetically, something dies so something else can eat. Something dies before anything can eat. You know, any nutrition that any living being takes in, whether it's plant, animal, or microbe, it's something that used to be alive. I, mean, you, I don't think you can name a nutrient that plant, animal, or microbe eats that wasn't a, a living thing. So yeah. before that can be, nutrition can be taken, something's got to die. <clears throat> and we talk about birth, growth, death, decay, birth, growth, death, decay, birth, growth, death, decay. Anything and everything that has ever lived will die, has died or will die. And anything that a living thing consumes has lived. And in a healthy ecosystem, everything's going to live again. Nothing stays dead long because it's going to go back into birth, growth, death, decay. So we, we talk about giving the animal uh, slaughter without pain or panic. And that's a lot easier on a uh, 100 head a week outfit than it is a 6,000 a day outfit. Or in the case of poultry, a thousand a day versus a quarter of a million a day. You know, we, yeah. we got the time to do it right. And, and I'm, uh, I'm not saying that industrial slaughterhouses are cruel places. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we can. We can manage it better because we, we, we uh, it costs a lot more to do it the way we do it, but there's a lot more management in it. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in, in terms of the pasturing and the rotation of the animals, y'all have a serious diversity of, of animals, which kind of goes back to your point about resiliency. But uh, are there some of those animals, I mean, of all the ones you mentioned, uh, it seems like some of the, the fowl and, um, uh, yeah, some of the birds might be kind of difficult to pasture in that way. Do you let them free range, or are they in mobile coops? How do you do that? Good question. Several comments about that. But uh, <clears throat> used to, it was completely free range. Used to, we provided a house shelter without a floor in it. <clears throat> and they weren't confined to that house. That was just where they get out of the sun, get out of the rain. And they were loose out there. Several years ago, we had a, a repopulation of eagles that just ate us up. I mean, they just, the eagle predation was horrible. What kind eagle. of eagle? Bald eagles. Bald, Bald eagles. eagles. Oh, wow. So we put, we started then putting webbing around the house. Not to keep the chickens in, but keep my guard dogs in. Uh, what was happening was my guardian dogs, who are great and <clears throat> work well for nocturnal creatures. But in the daytime, they went to the woods and went to sleep. And <laughs> the, the, the chickens, geese, guineas, ducks, turkeys would wa wander out and they were easy prey for eagles. And, and it was, eagles were eating more, uh, killing more than they were eating. They were just killing for fun. Oh, man. So we put the uh, wire, the, the poly wire around the houses so we keep the dogs in. So now the, the, the birds can't get us so far from the house, the dog can't go to the woods and it works a lot better. So that that's a modification that was brought about because of the eagle predation. 
I've been watching uh, on Rome Ranch on their Instagram stories right now. They've got a what they think is a great horned owl every night killing some of their their poultry, but um, it doesn't taking, like take, taking the heads off. Yeah, it's taking the heads off and eating just a little bit out of the neck and yep. then leaving it. <clears throat> owl. An owl, man, that's wild. Yeah, yeah that's what, what they a, do. What a strange way to. <laughs> I don't know. Every, every predator leaves. They leave. Uh, they leave their mark. If you know what you're looking for, and you know what did it. Do y'all have other predator pressures with your other livestock? Uh, we keep guardian dogs with our sheep and, and goats. Uh, the cows and hogs don't need them. The poultry, yeah. poultry, uh, uh, sheep and goats. Okay. Uh, one thing a lot of folks that I speak to that are involved in this kind of uh, land management, they often have a hunting program. I didn't see on your website. Is that something you've ever done? No. I was an avid hunter when I was a young man, and I I just reached when I killed about everything I wanted to kill. So I, I, I'm not opposed to hunting. I just don't do it anymore. I don't, uh, I don't think I will. We got too much livestock, 100,000 beating hearts on this farm. I, I, I wouldn't trust somebody I didn't know out there with a gun there's just too much too much too many things to shoot intentionally or by accident I do allow uh, employees to hunt yeah that makes total sense I think it's also situational you know some places where maybe they have land that is not um, exactly farmable uh, steep slopes and, and or creeks they want to leave intact and stuff like that they'll hunt those areas but you know, y'all have mostly pasture, right? You don't have a whole lot of forested area. Uh, well, I mean, we we do have forest, but we graze them. I mean, it's part of the okay. part of the savannah. It's the natural ecosystem that we, we do graze. To your point, there, grassland ecosystems, and, and in your case, savanna ecosystems. Uh, I kind of want to talk about to to get your thoughts on ranching uh, and farming land management of of grassland ecosystems and um, carbon sequestration which i know is something that y'all have have researched can you tell me about what you've found uh, with your model of land management and how you're able to sequester carbon on that land i think the first thing the land manager must do is understand his or her ecosystem that's essential There's a reason why land evolved to be a certain ecosystem. You can't make a mountain out of a marsh or a marsh out of a mountain, although we try all the time. We modern farmers, uh, that's what we try to do. I guess you can build a lake on top of a mountain, but it's going to cost a lot of money and it's not going to last very long. So that's... uh, uh, getting a full understanding of your ecosystem is important. Uh, Wendell Berry, you know who Wendell Berry is? I do, yeah. Wendell Berry, one of the things he said that's great is that, uh, that there's no uh, overestimating the value of what a farmer knows about his farm, I mean, her farm as well. So knowing, knowing what you got, knowing how it evolved, knowing what that land wants to be, is essential. Mm. And once you have that understanding, or start to get that understanding, it takes a long time, you can figure out 
what cycles of nature are broken. And from that point forward, your job is to uh, move those cycles of nature to optimum uh, optimum utilization. You know, the, the cycles of nature are, to name a few, the water cycle, carbon cycle, mineral cycle, microbial cycle, energy cycle, grazing cycle. The proper cycles we humans don't even understand. Yeah. And we humans have used technology to break those cycles. And we, we have screwed that up pretty good. And step one is to understand your ecosystem. Step two is to figure out what cycles are broken, how badly they're broken. Step three is to figure out how to get them again uh, operating optimally. And when you do that, you'll store carbon. You know, you'll, uh, you'll bring microbial life back to the, front, to the, to the soil. You'll, you'll again have microbial uh, life in the right fungal to bacterial ratio. Uh, it, it, it's just a matter of getting that. You know, you'll, you'll spend the rest of your life getting those cycles operating optimally. It's been a pretty good life. <laughs> when you look, uh, when you look at those long-term cycles and all the things that you've learned now managing this land, um, what do you hope to leave behind? What do you, what do you see for the future of white oak pastures, and you know maybe things that you haven't accomplished yet that you'd like to, to get done? <clears throat> well, we love, uh, we love. We love completing loops. You know, we, that's part of resilience is uh, loops that we have not yet completed is we uh, uh, we don't we don't have a hatchery. We buy one one day old chicks and keats and ducklings and goslings and poles. We don't have a feed mill. We buy feed from a, 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 a non-GMO company here in Georgia. There's some other loops. Uh, we're not energy. We're not energy independent. We got a, a good bit of solar, but we still burn a lot of fossil fuel. <clears throat> uh, but then there, there's others, uh, and we and we talk about it a lot. And we uh, uh, have a list of projects that we want to do. <clears throat> but you know, it's uh, all of them cost money, and we have to be judicious in managing our cash. Can't, we can't jump on too many things at one time. And, uh, you know, and I, I'll be working on this list of, of cycles we want to complete the rest of my life. And then my children will be working on it the rest of their life. And, and that's fine. That's good. That's where you're supposed to be. It's a journey, not a destination. You won't ever get through. And if you need to get through, I don't know, that'd be bad because we'll be thinking about next. Yeah. Among those cycles, um, I'm glad to hear you talk about the the economics of your area. Uh, I used to live out there, not not too far from you, up in Knoxville, and spent some time in Chattanooga. I used to hang around Atlanta and um, got to know a little bit more about kind of the Southeast culture and about Appalachian culture. And um, economically, there's not a lot of prospect for a lot of those communities. And uh, it's a really tough cycle to break. I think what you're doing 
seems to, like you said, really help transform your community. Do you see, I guess, what are your thoughts on um, larger scale economic cycles and, and poverty in the Southeast and, and the role of agriculture there? I think that what we have done here is a huge part of the answer to rural poverty, especially in areas that have uh, come from a agrarian economy. This little town of Bluffton has never had a railroad, it's never had a factory, it's never had a mill, never had an office building. It's always been a purely agrarian economy. And when we uh, industrial, my father's generation and mine industrialized, centralized, commoditized agriculture, we rendered this town uh, economically irrelevant. I've already said that one time. I mean, we better say it again. It became economically irrelevant. So it perished. When something becomes irrelevant, it perishes. Quit using your arms and your legs, they become irrelevant, they perish. So uh, what we have done here is highly replicatable. It's not highly scalable. I don't want to put another white oak pastures in the next town 10 miles that way, and one the next town 10 miles that way, one the next, it, it, but it's highly scalable. I mean, excuse me, replicatable. You can you can have. Uh, I, I think there should be a, a white oak pastures in every agrarian county in the nation, or two or three. And I think if you did, you'd have a much healthier rural economy. You'd have a much more resilient food system. You have I mean, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of, a lot of cleaner water and air, a lot more carbon and microbes in the soil. I can go on and on about some things that would be good. And, it's, and it, I, I think I mentioned this is also replicatable because you don't have to be uh, Bill Gates with a trust fund to do it. Here, I mean, we put together a $25 million business, 180 employees, and it was done by a C student with good credit, you might lunch. And uh, you know, I mean, if I, if I hadn't had, if I had nothing, no, no financial strength, I couldn't have done it. But yeah. I, I inherited about a thousand acres of land without debt from my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and a herd of cows and some other assets. And I was not rich, but I had good credit and I, I leveraged it and, you know, spent the $7 million, not at one time, but over 20 years, to buy more land and build more value addition and the things that goes to, to make a business. Now, I know you say you're not an evangelist, but for your immediate neighbors there, let's say they share a fence with you and they're looking at your soil and your happy animals and your cover crops and they're looking at their degraded, dried out, uh, you know, fertilized, no organic matter soil. Do you have people in your in your direct vicinity that are starting to convert to your style of, of farming or, or not? Not. Really? Oh, man. Well, and, and you got to remember, these are, these are smart people. They, they, and they, there's a lot of reasons for them not to embrace this model. 
uh, uh, <clears throat> the, the risk to reward ratio is better in their system than it is mine. You know, with okay. uh, the things like federal crop insurance and irrigation and uh, war chest of uh, pesticides and forward pricing and government pay. There's a lot there. Uh, the, the financial uh, financial reward uh, of what we've done has not been sufficient to cover the risk. You know, uh, the, the Harvard MBA would tell you don't do that. And they'd be right because we're working without a net. Mm. We, we're living very comfortably. I'm not complaining about what we make, how we're living. But we've got 20 something million dollars in assets tied up. We've got some debt to, to take off of that. And it's a break even it's business. So you can't look at a farm and say, you're stupid for not doing what White Oak Pastures did. You might, you might look at White Oak Pastures and say, you're stupid for not doing what these other guys did. It depends on what you think is important. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess one could argue that you're not in the business of, uh, of trying to squeeze the, the land for all it's worth. You're in the business of managing land. Um, and so different expectations there. Well, it's a longer, it's a longer term plan for us. And we think we, we make decisions generationally. And I told you my, my grandchildren are living on this farm right now. They're the sixth generation. And we, we, we genuinely try to make generational decisions. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm really, I'm really interested in what y'all are doing. I have not had a chance to try uh, any of your stuff that yet, so I think I'm going to get online and order something. If if I were to try uh, to to buy some of your products, what would you recommend to start with? You know, I like everything that grows on a cow, or hog, or sheep, or goat, or rabbit, or chicken. It's all good. It depends on what you're going to do with it. You know, there's certain things that are meant to be. Uh, barbecued, certain grilled, certain things meant to be stewed, some things meant to be braised. Uh, it's, it's all good. Uh, the, the organ meats have exploded. You know, the, uh, the carnivore diet and healthy CrossFit and those kinds of activities have really allowed us to uh, market organs, particularly that we used to throw away. You know, wow. We, uh, we would make, uh, and, you know, we, we throw nothing away. We, we you know, uh, hides, we turn it, uh, we uh, send to a, a vegetable-based tannery, turn it to lower, make purses and stuff. And uh, the organs like esophaguses and penises and tracheas, we dehydrate for pet cheese. And a lot of things we used to throw away uh, are, are all for compost uh, today. We operate the plants as zero waste. We, we, uh, even what's not marketable, which would be eviscerate, gut fill, heads. Uh, we we uh, grind it up and make compost out of it. We generate about nine tons a day of what they call packing plant waste, which is the, the stuff that's not marketable. We, we compost it, put it back on the land, and it's, it's just great. Wow. 
do you have to have um, massive compost heaps at, at high temperatures to handle that kind of matter? We do. There's about nine tons of eighty-five days a week. We got a young lady that manages it, and she's got uh, pretty sophisticated thermometers that she puts in there. And, and there are rules, and I don't know what they are. Hundred has got to be. 115 degrees for 100 days. Those are not the right numbers, but there's the, and she uh, ensures that, that that happens. That's fascinating. Yeah, the organ meats have exploded. Uh, my wife won't have them around, but I always keep them on the animals I kill. I, I enjoy them. I give them to my dog or whatever. But um, thank you, Mr. Harris. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy out there, and, uh, you know, it's a busy time of year as well, but um, I really appreciate you sharing some of these ideas with me and uh, hope to make it out to your farm sometime. I hope you'll come. It's uh, very good to meet you and we're proud to have you now.